Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is the second lecture and I'll cover briefly then uh, chapters 1 to 8 and try to work out an alternative to the traditional reading. And as Douglas Campbell points out, that uh, this idea of a contractual reading, it's just so pervasive. I, I have no commentary that I know of that I could point you to to get an alternative to this. It's a, it's a pervasive understanding. Not wrong in, in a lot of the details, but wrong in the overall sense that it brings to the book. And, and of course, through this, throughout this, that my deep reading of chapter 6 to 8, and even maybe deep reading, that's sort of a pretentious thing. But I'm afraid that what has happened is that in typical contractual theory or typical notions of justification, as we looked at it in a, the first lecture, have so pervasively dominated, not just reformed thinking, but in the West, that it's just uh, kind of consumed people's understanding, that it provides it such an interference that we almost don't have access to the text. And, and of course, I just think Paul knows nothing about that sort of thought. And it's only a problem for us. It's not a problem for them that Paul is making a very specific point, and he presumes that as a Christian, as Christians in Rome, maybe the, some, some of the most sophisticated Christians in the world, that there is a shared understanding. And, of course, he arrives at this shared understanding, I believe, completely explained in 6 to 8. He's not doing anything different in 1 to 4. That is, he's not laying out contractual theory in 1 to 4, and then describing some, some sort of participatory salvation in 6 to 8 as if these two things need to stand in contrast. Part of the issue here is that just the, the language that we're dealing with has been changed up then, I think, by contractual theory or theories of justification. And it's presumed then in this, you know, kind of a, a surface reading that what Paul is doing in 1 to 4 is spelling out, oh, look, people have an ethical problem, and therefore God has made you know, a way that they can solve their, their problem through some sort of contractual theology. Now, as interesting as Douglas Campbell's reading is, I, I'm afraid that even in his presentation of the teacher, that he's just repeating the notion that this was an understanding that somebody believed in the, the first century. I don't think that the Jews, this doesn't really get at the Jewish problem or the specifics of the problem that Paul is dealing with in Rome. And so I think we just need to get rid of that contractual reading. If we already know that the ethical failure is not the extent of the problem, but it's a marker of the problem, and Paul is going to indicate that throughout, then I believe we can remove any apparent contradiction between 6 to 8 and 1 to 4. But let me try to run this down briefly for you, and if, if my explanation fails at some point, well, please let me know. But in a conventional justification theory, which again is unknown to Paul and his readers, it may be true that you could read chapter 1 to 4, and if you have this preconceived notion of uh, that salvation is on the basis of you know, some sort of uh, justification, ethical justification that Christ gives us that he satisfies the wrath of God. Well, I suppose you could get that in through 1 to 4. But, of course, it means that you're going to have to change up 
the meaning of the terminology, all of the terms come to mean something different in this contractual reading. And it certainly depends on keeping one to four isolated from Paul's main point. And I think Paul's, you know, to say that six to eight is his main point, well, really the rightly read one to four is part of his main point. It's not in contrast to that. And I think once you get, once we understand the problem and maybe you know, maybe we almost needed to start with the problem in chapter 7 to understand he's not saying anything different, but we, we'll come to that. So 1 to 4 is not a presentation of contractual theory, but it is indeed a development of what Paul sees as the deep underlying problem. To, to miss the problem, the depth of the problem, is what is at stake here. And the very specific nature of the problem, that is that Paul is going to link the problem to a deception. He does that in certainly in chapter 7, but he's, he's doing that in 1 to 4. He's saying that the nature of the human problem is this lie, this deception. And this deception, then, that has been all people have entered into in Adam, or that they themselves have, have reconfirmed in their own lifestyle, it is going to be resolved. This is what he's describing as the problem that Christ gives resolution to. It's not that people are unethical in, in terms of the law, and then Christ meets those ethical terms. It's that people are enslaved to a lie, and Paul is just spelling that out. They all know that because they all read the same Bible. He's not describing some theoretical history here. He's appealing to the history they all know from the book of Genesis. I'm afraid that even my language here to say that justification theory works only on the surface, yeah, but it's a, it's a surface that in some way exists on a kind of false foundation. And so, in brief, Paul is describing not simply that people do bad things, God's going to send them to hell if they don't believe in Jesus, but rather he's describing the sense in which uh, people are bound over to a, a lie. And, of course, the language then, we need to, to redefine it here in terms of this lie. That's the understanding of what shame is. You know, think of the first couple's picture of shame. First of all, their problem is not simply that they're guilty of not doing what God said. Their problem is that they're holistically changed up. Certainly they're guilty, but guilt is a, a side problem. Their main problem as depicted in Genesis, and this just take, gets taken up in the rest of the Bible, and that's what Paul is saying is thematic in his explanation. And certainly he'll return. He's going to return to Genesis again and again that he's echoing Genesis, and we may miss that, the work with Richard Hayes and others. They're saying, oh, wait, Paul is just uh, describing uh, Adam here again, and he's certainly doing that in chapter 7. But throughout this section of Scripture, he's echoing then, or just retelling the, the, the picture of the fall and of the, the early history of, of human beings. That history is taken up in shameful lifestyle, that is death dealing. That is, death is not, you know, certainly death comes to Adam, but as he's going to say in chapter 5, that death then spread to all, and therefore all sinned. He's really describing that. That is, that it's this orientation to death that explains the, the way in which they're deceived, 
And idolatry is a neat explanation of that because idolatry, the idolatrous scene, just reifies the lie. It puts it out there. I explain this in a, a couple of the readings I, we do here, but the, the idea is that idolatry is not something apart from the problem. It is just illustrative of the problem. And of course, for Paul, idolatry is not simply that thing that people do, that false religion, the particulars of that, but idolatry is connected with desire. That is, that he's, he will say as much that lust or desire is idolatry or is idolatrous. The peculiarities of sexual perversion, I, there is an explanation for that, I think. That is that the fall of man and the idolatrous desire gives rise to the, the particular sexual perversions that we see in the early chapters of Genesis. That is that man's narcissism, think of here of Lamech, it gives rise to uh, the, a particular sort of violence. All of this is connected in Paul's language, he's going to say, connect it to unfaithfulness. I'm afraid that we've just emptied these terms of their biblical meaning. What they mean is, in, in terms of he, a Hebrew understanding, their f family terms, think in terms of being faithful to a relationship, being faithful to your wife, uh, being faithful to covenant. That faithfulness, and that's the word you, you know with the term pistis, that it can be translated as simply faith, or maybe the better translation is faithfulness. That is, it's not simply faith in an object or something that, uh, you know, that faith in what Christ has done, and then we are in some way separated that with from that. But no, as with Abraham's faithfulness, and he is our prototype here, that that life course is one that's repeated in all of us, and what it's a, a departure from and a journey into, of course, is also then caught up in the language of shame. This is the maybe the big term that gets ignored here, that shame is thematic uh, in, in the thesis statement. Paul's going to bring it. It's, that's the subject of these first three chapters. And Abraham is a resolution to shame, if we understand that being a childless individual in old age, Sarah and Abraham are childless and as good as dead. Well, that's a shameful condition. That's as, that's as bad as you get. The resolution to their problem then is in the particular, the peculiar journey into death that they take. And so if we understand the, the deep problem here is not guilt in regard to the law, but shame in regard to identity, and, and the picture of the guilt in, in regard to the law is simply a pointing to that. And Paul just keeps saying that even here in the first three chapters. You know, that's the reason that faithfulness makes sense. So it's not contractual theory in that we're justified theoretically imputed righteousness if we intensely believe in the, the factual history of who Jesus is and believe that he in some way has mysteriously and strangely satisfied God, and then we can theoretically at least be okay. That may be a, a exaggerated reading, I, I think it's not in some instances, of contractual theory or of, of divine satisfaction or penal substitution. I think once you get this in 118 to 23, you know, Paul is not saying, oh, look at these wonderful cognitive capacities that these unknown people, you know, that he may be talking about, that the pagans can in some way philosophically reason their way to God. 
that has nothing to do with what he's talking about. He's not talking about people's cognitive ability to reach God. He's just talking about the early history of humankind outlined in Genesis. Uh, first of all, in Genesis 3, you know, think of the, the fall of man and then what happens to Cain. It's not a question of they, they don't know God. What well, God speaks to them. God appears to them. Even Lamech, who is, uh, you know, as violent as they come, he still is doing things in knowledge. He still has a knowledge of God, and certainly, you know, Noah, God speaks to Noah. And so Paul is not recounting some theoretical history that we don't know about. He's recounting a history of the human race that's inclusive of all people. He will do this again and again. He'll do it in chapter 5. He's doing it in chapter 7. And the resolution then, whether you're talking about Jews, they're a, a slight departure from this history, but then they share in the same history. The point here is not that they reject their potential philosophical understanding of God. No, they knew God. No qualifiers needed. This culminates, you know, historically, if we go back and read the history leading up to Babel, there doesn't seem to be idolatrous religion. There is just murderous uh, narcissism that people are psychopaths. And then that culminates in the organization of Babel and the uh, Babel society is the point in Old Testament history when idolatry runs rampant so that the next chapter then we're introduced to this family of Abraham, but the family of Abraham, they all are, even they are carrying around idols. And so the, the picture that Paul is recounting is that these people are just like the first parents. It's not that they believe a lie in, you know, in some philosophical, vague philosophical sense. It's not just any lie, but it's the same lie. The lie always has the same structure. And idolatrous religion gets at the structure. It's the same lie that the serpent tells there, that you won't die. That is, it's an, a, a grab for life in and through the knowledge of good and evil. Good and evil could be any number of things, but, but the idea is that it's an ethical understanding that people then establish themselves. It's a religious understanding that they're going to establish themselves. And establish themselves refers to their identity. And this gets at the sexual perversion. Once this identity through difference is set up, and that's what you know, a knowledge of good and evil is, uh, that is taken up into the self, and it results then in a whole idolatrous scene is itself sexualized with the idol very often uh, being a phallic symbol and uh, the idea that the, the, uh, the sexuality is not the root of the problem, but sexuality or perverse sexuality is a manifestation of the same problem you have in idolatry. But that's already there with Adam and Eve. That's there with Lamech with his two wives and his murderous intent. And so the judgment here, well, these people die. Adam died. And death then is, is already passed. The judgment, the, the judgment of God that it's revealed from heaven now. You know, that it's not, oh, these people have broken God's law, and therefore, you know, it's not simply that. No, their behavior is death-dealing. Their behavior in every sense takes up, then, death into who they are in and through this law. And so it's a holistic failure. And so the tendency to judge this activity, you know, Paul talks about the, the Jews. It may be that he's talking about here. I don't think that this is necessarily a particular opponent. But he's talking about that our tendency may miss the extent of the problem. That is that Israel is not separate from this history. And he, a picture that he paints in chapter 3 when he 
quotes that series of things. Those, those, those quotations refer to both Jews and Gentiles, that nobody is separate from that. And so all humans are subject to a lie, and this is made obvious in what they do. What they do is a manifestation of the overall problem, and Paul says as much. Even though every person, including the Jews, is a liar and subject to the lie, this is the opening of 3.1, well, God is true, and what we mean here by the language of truth and lies, it's directly, Paul directly there translates it into unfaithful and faithful. People who are liars and believe in a lie, and it's not just that they're liars, that they ground themselves in a lie, they uh, create a situation, as Paul will describe it in chapter 7, but he's already describing it here, in which faithful, being faithful, faithful to a covenant or being faithful to a relationship is an impossibility. And so faithfulness is a resolution to the deep problem because the deep problem is in this lying unfaithfulness. True faithfulness is then uh, gets at the root problem. It's not that, oh, people now believe in something abstract like the atonement theory that we have in penal substitution or divine satisfaction or, or in the, uh, many of the theories that you get. The, what Jesus is doing is addressing the human predicament as we are bound in a slavery to this lie. And obviously Paul's point is not, oh, people's cognitive ability is fine, it's just that they have an ethical problem. They're, they're in such a condition that he calls them imbeciles, is David Bentley Hart's translation. That they are imbeciles is made demonstrable in the failure of their morality, their ethical fa failure. Paul sums this up. The logic of the lie He'll repeat it four times in various ways throughout Romans. You know, this is the law of sin. Shall we do evil that good may abound? Is grace then connected to our doing evil? Notice that Paul then connects this in verse 8 of chapter 3. When he says this right above this, he's already said that this is the difference between truth and falsehood. The problem throughout is, do you believe in a lie or do you believe in truth? This is, I think, then explains the next two chapters, uh, or the end of chapter 3, and then moving into chapter 4, which, of course, in chapter 3, is just, he's not just saying, oh, these people are just generally bad, or that they're ethically. Oh, he's stating this, and he's weaving this series of quotes together, that they have a problem with their speech in that they're all taking up a lie. And the lie then results in always the same thing. In other words, their problem is, it's in the organs of speech. It's taken up into their very identity. Like serpents, they're dealing out death. Their throats are like a sarcophagus. The very organs of speech, the, the language that they use, they inhabit this lie. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. And, of course, what David, in quoting this psalm, this language that David is using, it either leads to God's absence, that God is absent, the lie of sin deals in death, even among those, and of course, he's talking about the Jews, but he's just talking about everybody uh, who have been entrusted with the oracles of God. And so then the, the picture of faith or faithfulness is a departure from the lie, if we understand that the lie is death-dealing. It's an orientation to death. It's the belief that there's life in the law, and, and life in the law can get translated or interpreted as it does with the 
in idolatry or is in the Tower of Babel. They believe life is in the tower, that they can storm the heavens. That is, the human problem is the same problem, and it's connected to this death-dealing lie. And Abraham is the universal departure from this because his journey into death, that is, the, what is the human problem? They would grab life for themselves. They would establish themselves. Abraham would potentially do that. And, of course, the circumstance of Abraham that we often picture, oh, look at all these obstacles that are thrown up in uh, Abraham's way. No, those obstacles are the very way that we understand Abraham's journey is a journey into a particular kind of faith, that he's childless, and God has given him a promise of a child. That is, he is without life because the child is representative of his. It's exactly over and against what the Babylites would, they would establish their own name. And God says, well, I'll establish your name. And so the promise it, you know, that is the, the, the significance of God's word there. That is the significance of the covenant. And, of course, that's Paul's argument here in chapter 4. The covenant comes first in faithfulness, and then the law is simply a marker of that. The father of the Jews is the father of faith because he makes his this journey. You know, you could look at the life course of Abraham. It's a long journey into death acceptance where you might picture the Babylites as being uh, subject to death denial, and that language is a bit too simplistic, but at least it gets at the problem, the nature of the sin problem. If we, when we say death denial, we get that the picture of Genesis chapter three, and that death denial then is connected with a positive understanding in the original pair's understanding. The knowledge of good and evil is really what they believe. The death denial is, in fact, unconscious, and that's true then with the Babylites, that's true with everyone else. And so what's happening with Abraham is that this unconscious situation is being brought to consciousness. And so Paul associates faith with the key element of trust in God's promise in the face of shame and death. That is, that's the situation of Abraham. He's subject to shame because of his life situation and being subject to shame and uh, the Old Testament is the living death, you know, to, to the shame of a living death, and death is the end of shame. So that here is the, the real-world experience of death as we take it up into ourselves. But Abraham endures this because he's been given a promise from God, and it and is then a prolepsis, or it is a pointer to resurrection faith. So resurrection faith allows one to accept the circumstance of not having life in ourselves, not being able to establish ourselves, but depending upon God to establish it. And sin then might be depicted as a kind of death resistance. This is the Babylites. This is Adam and Eve. The serpent says you won't die. This is also the covenant with death in Isaiah. It's just pictured again and again, and Paul is going to recount that history uh, throughout the book. And so then if we understand what shame is, then we can understand that when Paul uses the language of righteousness and unrighteousness, this is thematic. I strangely people pass over this as a theme. But of course, being ashamed, being made right, those are over and against one of this thing that Richard Hayes brings out in the Old Testament. The language of shame appears together in the Lament Psalms and also here in Paul's terminology that I'm not ashamed the righteousness of God has been revealed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He'll spell that out later in chapter 10. He'll quote then the 
section in Isaiah 29 where, where, where Isaiah is depicting the covenant with death and Paul then is explaining how the, there, there's a departure from that. We, we are not ashamed. He's going to, to spell it out because of the righteousness. We're made right. And, of course, shame, think here of the difference of shame. It's holistic. It has to do with everything that a person is. Shame then gives rise to, rise to pride. That is, the whole human endeavor might be seen as pride, an attempt to establish your own righteousness in the case of the Jews, but that's always the human problem. They all, everybody wants to make themselves right in the face of shame. And so the point is not to return to the innocence of the garden, but the fact, you know, in, in a sense, the, the uh, history of that is being recounted there was always meant then to culminate in what we find in Christ. It's not that, whoops, man fell, now what do we do? But that the completion of what human beings are is going to be found in their participation in the, the Trinity that Paul is going to spell out. And so Paul is not ashamed in the face of sin and death, Abraham is not ashamed. Uh, Adam, you know, the, the new Adam is the way that Paul will talk about it, because the original Adam was put to shame, and the second Adam endures that shame and reverses then the history of the law. And, of course, throughout here, he's, Paul is talking in apocalyptic language and universal language. The idea here is that we've traded sin as a very specific entry into a lie, and we see this that the faithfulness of Abraham counters this lie, the, the orientation to death, because this faithfulness directly addresses the deep-rooted nature of sin, the slavery, as Paul will call it, to the fear of death. And so the specific problem of the reign of death through sin that's the way he describes it throughout, is undone in faithfulness, which overcomes the threat of death. And that's what he's describing in chapter 4. So the bondage of sin, as portrayed in the passages Paul has taken up, invariably portrays this organic link between death resistance, or as Isaiah describes it, taking refuge in a lie, the covenant with death, uh, can be described in any number of ways. This is what idolatry is, but this is just the human condition. We've all entered in some way into this covenant with death, and that is sin. That's definitive of sin. And Christ then, and that's the portrayal in Isaiah 28, the messianic passage there, that he annuls this covenant with death. And so faith is a, you know, it is death acceptance. You know, it is resurrection faith. It ex involves the exposure of the lie, and that's what it means when it talks about the life journey of Christ, that he is the truth as over and against a, a lie. And so there is a reversing of course in a person's life that we no longer attempt to negotiate the, the problem ourselves, but we have the full assurance that Christ then, following Christ, he's negotiated what is the problem. It's an orientation to death. The law then accentuates this in that people trust in the law in the same way. And it's not that that was the way that God set this up. The, the law was a marker then of a relationship that existed prior to the law in this faithfulness. The law here, and that's the understanding, the law just brings this out, the problem 
of the lie, the problem that the law has not addressed the deep problem because the deep problem and the deep resolution is really there in Abraham. And of course, that will be resolved in Christ. That's the point in chapter five. You know, you can recount, you can just sum up this universal history. There's two kinds of human beings. There's the first Adam. And all that Adam did is the summation of what human beings do because we all participate in the same thing. Death reigned from Adam until Moses. And because death reigned, then sin reigned because of the orientation to death. This is the reversal then of Augustine's reading of this. And, you know, obviously it's in Augustine's reading that we get the whole uh, contractual theology and all of the uh, understanding of divine satisfaction. We just don't need to go there. There is the second Adam who reverses what the first Adam did. And so this is recognized, that many people recognize that Adam is representative for Paul of the reason that Christ came. And Paul is going to spell this out, that Adam is, you know, he's de depicting this deep problem of, of Adam in chapter 7 that is not just the problem of Adam, but it's the problem of the Jews. It's the problem of Paul when we come to chapter 7. We'll see that this includes everybody. And so that's the, that's the sense that chapter 6 to 8 is not any different from that. It's just a, a deepening of the problem that we might say that in chapters 1 to 4, he's described the problem and solution in universal terms. And then in chapter 6 to 8, he gets down to the details. This actually looks like for everybody. That is that through baptism, baptism comes to play a key role because it is the picture of the resolution of the problem. We die, that is, there is the death acceptance. We are joined to his death, that is, that the journey that Christ made is one that we take up in baptism, and it's not just a theoretical picture, but it makes a different kind of human being. That's what Paul is saying. We're joined to Christ. It's that there's no longer the, the emptiness in unregenerate or in, in, in those of, of the first Adam type. Chapter 6 to 8 explains what this universality looks like in terms of individual identity and in terms of the dynamics of human interiority. Again, I always emphasize when I come to this, it's not it's not to make this simply individualistic. It is certainly corporate, and he's described this in corporate terms throughout, universal terms. And so when we come to the, the six to eight, it's not, oh, now we're dealing, the, we're dealing simply with the individual, but he is describing it in terms of individual identity and the dynamics of human interiority. But obviously this in chapter eight, he will take up the corporate language. The resolution is not simply in uh, what you typically find in contractual theology, some sort of accept Jesus into your heart and individually then you can, you're saved. No, the picture, the, the participatory picture in chapter 8 is then the resolution to the problem that he's described in 1 to 3. It's universal. We're all participants in it. Not the we're born genetically, you know, malformed ethically. That's not the problem. But the, the human culture, human society, human families then have bought into this deception. And so there's the universal reign of sin and death that Christ has overcome. And so Paul explains how, you know, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And he's explaining then how God's making things right in regard to the human plight of sin and death. So 
What are the first eight chapters about? Death reigns no more if we understand that death, then, the particular, that that's really a, a summation of the problem. As the author of life extends life through Christ, so as to defeat the orientation to death inherent in sin. And so the theme of these chapters is captured in the summation conclusion. This is 8.2, for the law of the spirit of life, and Holy Spirit is central. The picture, it's not that there is an ethical responsibility here. It's not that we've departed from doing things. No, it's still doing things. But the doing things, then, is the doing of love, of the law of the life, you know, the life of the spirit. That is that we're enabled to carry out this right wising is the way that McClendon puts it. And Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's just described how this law of sin and death, it's there in the breaking of the original prohibition. In other words, our problem is law, but not in the sense of a contractual theory. Oh, that we've broken the law. Our problem is law in that we are misoriented to the law. Just think here in terms of Genesis. What is the law? Well, the original prohibition is don't eat, but then they become a law unto themselves. They see the original law as a screen, and they grab for something. They make a law for themselves. That move is always what people do. It's, it's what the Jews do. That is that they have the oracles of God, but they've taken the law, and they've attempted to establish a righteousness of their own. So the law of sin and death, law is still in that language. But law is, the law is holy, just, and good. But what we do with the law, Paul says in Romans 7, or yeah, Romans 7, that we've been deceived in regard to the law. And so that's what he means by the laws. All right, that's a, not a, such a short summary, but I think that gets at the key problems here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.